You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. My name is Rick Kleffel, and I host a show on NPR affiliate here in Santa Cruz, KUSP, called The Agony Column. It runs Sundays from 6 to 7 p.m., where I feature authors like our esteemed guest tonight, Kim Stanley Robinson, whose new book is 2312. These are books well worth your valuable reading time. Now, we're here in a wonderful shared space, an independent bookseller. This is a Capitola Book Cafe, and there's currently running a Survive and Thrive fundraising campaign. This is to help keep this space open, to help keep this space thriving. You can talk to the people at the front desk to how to help keep events like this coming because this is something that is kind of like the lumbering dinosaur <laughs> and we need to keep these guys alive and help them. So please help uh, Capitola Book Cafe, and one way you can help is, of course, to buy the fabulous book that we're going to be talking about tonight. Uh, my guest this evening is Kim Stanley Robinson. He's the author of the Mars Trilogy, Red Mars, Blue Mars, Green Mars, the Global Warming Human Comedy Trilogy, 40 Signs of Rain, 50 Degrees Below, and 60 Days and Counting, Galileo's Dream, and lots of other books. His new book is 2312. Uh, Stan, thank you for joining me. My pleasure, Rick. Good to be back here again. I think it's been almost exactly a year. This is a fabulous book set 300 years in the future. Why don't you uh, read some portions and give us a flavor of what <coughs> to expect? Sure. Um, I'll make a very brief reading. Uh, in this book, people occupy most of the bodies of the solar system one way or another, but um, I want to read to you a brief passage of uh, the main character coming back to um, the sad old Earth. So uh, I reckon it'll be about uh, 10 minutes here of this segment. With a, uh, There'll be some jumping. In Quito, Swan took the train to the airport and got on an airplane flight to New York. The Caribbean's cobalt and turquoise and jade were brilliantly vivid. Even the brown, underwater outline of drowned Florida had a jasper sheen, the stunning gloss of Earth itself. A much steelier ocean crashed whitely into Long Island as they descended over it, bumping and slipping in the air. Then they were landing on a runway somewhere, somewhere on the mainland north of Manhattan, and at last she was out of the various travel containers, the rooms and vehicles and corridors and hallways, and under the open sky. Simply to be outdoors in the open air, under the sky, in the wind, this was what she loved most about Earth. Today, puffy clouds were massed overhead at about the thousand-foot level, looked like a marine layer rolling in. She ran out into some kind of paved lot filled with trucks and buses and trolley cars and jumped around screaming at the sky and then kneeled and kissed the ground made wolf howls, and after she had hyperventilated a bit, lay on her back on the pavement. No handstands. She had learned long before that handstands on Earth were really hard. <clears throat> so now she's in a um, kind of drowned portion of uh, New Jersey, across the river from New York. And she's gone out by herself from uh, an old partner's um, um, apartment on the shore of this place that we'll come back to later. But now she's just out by herself. She sat there on the dirt, feeling it lumpy under her. She saw a motion from the corner of her eye and tried to leap to her feet, misjudged the G and crashed back down. She peered into the gloom. A face, two faces, mother and daughter. Here it was such a clear thing. It looked like parthenogenesis. Moonlight just now breaking over the sky glow of the city. The younger stepped towards Swan and said something in a language Swan didn't recognize. What is it, Swan said. Don't you speak English? The woman shook her head, said something more. She looked around, called quietly behind her. Two more figures appeared next to her, taller than her and broader. Two young men. They leaned over and muttered to the daughter. You have antibiotics, one of them said. My cousin is sick. No, Swan said. I don't carry those on me. 
They took a step closer. Who are you, one said. What are you? I'm visiting friends, Swan said. I can call them. The young men approached her, shaking their heads. You're a spacer, the first speaker said, and the other added, what are you doing here? I have to go, Swan said, and started for the road, but the two of them grabbed her by the arms. Their grips were so strong that she didn't even try to jerk free. Hey, she said sharply. The first speaker called out towards the dark behind the two women. Karen, Karen. Soon another figure appeared out of the dark, another young man, the tallest yet, but willowy. The two holding Swan had grips that felt to her like something they had done before. The new young man was startled at the sight of Swan and said something sharp to the two holding her in the language she didn't recognize. A quick, urgent conversation passed between them. This Kieran was not pleased. Finally, he looked at Swan. They want to keep you for money. Give me a second here. More urgent talk in their language. Kieran appeared to be making them nervous or defensive, and then he approached and took Swan by the upper arm, squeezing once as if to send a message, and gestured to the others away with a flick of his head. He was telling them what to do. The other two finally nodded, and the one who had spoken first said to her, back soon, and then the first two slipped away into the night. Swan looked Kieran in the eye, and he grimaced and let go of her arm. Those are my cousins, he said. They had a bad idea. A stupid idea, Swan said. They could have just asked me for help. So what did you tell them? That I would keep you here while they got their mother's car. So now I think you should get out of here. Come walk me back, Swan said. I want you along in case they return. His eyebrows shut up his forehead and he regarded her closely. After a while he said, all right. They walked quickly on the road. Will you get in trouble for this, Swan said at one point. Yes, he said. What'll they do? They'll try to beat on me and tell the old guys. Her arms were still burning where they had been gripped and her cheeks were hot. She regarded the gloomy youth walking next to her. He looked good and he had without a moment's hesitation removed her from a bad situation. She recalled how sharp his voice had been when he'd spoken to his cousins. Do you want to leave, she said. What do you mean? Do you want to go into space? After a pause, he said, can you do that? Yes. They stopped outside Zasha's and Swan looked him over. She liked the look of him. He looked at her with an expression curious, wondering, eager. She felt a shiver run down her. My friend who lives here is a diplomat for Mercury, so come in if you want. We can get you up there if you want, she said, looking skyward briefly. He hesitated. You won't uh, get me in trouble? I will get you in trouble. Trouble in space. She started towards Zasha's, and after a moment, he followed her. She opened the door. Zasha's, he said. Just a sec, Zasha called out of the kitchen. The boy was staring at her, clearly wondering if she was on the level. Swan said, they called you Kieran? Yes, Kieran. What language were you speaking? Tuluga. Where's that from? South India. What are you doing here? We live here now. So he was already in exile. And there were all kinds of immigrant residency requirements on Earth. Possibly, he was not in compliance. Zasha appeared in the doorway to the kitchen, washcloth in hand. Uh-oh, who's this? This is Kieran. His friends were kidnapping me, and he helped me to escape. In return, I told him I would get him off Earth. But no, but yes. So here we are, and I need to keep my word. Zasha looked at Swan skeptically. What is this, Stockholm Syndrome already? Z glanced at the youth, whose gaze was fixed on Swan. Or is it Lima syndrome? What are those, Kieran said, without shifting his gaze. Sasha made a little grimace. Stockholm syndrome is where hostages become sympathetic to their captors and advocate for them. Lima syndrome is where kidnappers become fond of their victims and let them go. Swan said, isn't there a ransom of Red Chief syndrome? Come on, Z, I told you. He rescued me. What syndrome is that? I want to repay a favor, and I need your help. Quit trying to take over the situation like you always do. Zasha turned away with an annoyed look, thought it over, shrugged. We can get him off if you really want it. I'll have to do it through a friend who helps me with this kind of thing. He's at the Trinidad Tobago elevator. It's a hawala. We have a kind of pass-through agreement. Although, after this I'll owe him. Meaning, you'll owe me. I always owe you. How we get to Trinidad? Diplomatic pouch. What? A private jet. We'll have to get a worm box, too. A what? We have a system. It's always supposed to be a box of soil or worms, and then there's an understanding. It doesn't get inspected. Worms, Kieran said. 
That's right, Zasha told him with a grim little smile. I'm going to get you off planet because of Ms. Stockholm here, but given the circumstances, we have to do it off the record. That takes using the systems that we have. So you might have to go up in a big box of worms, all right? Are you going to be okay with that? No problem, said Kieran. <laughs> we'll stop there. <coughs> You know, uh, when I read this book, I, I, one of the things I was thinking was, who would have thought back when the Soviet Union was falling apart that the word balkanized would come to be such a powerful descriptor both of our world and of your future? <laughs> well, there's a little story about this term balkanized and the balkanization. Uh, in, in the novel here, Earth has something like 500 or 600 countries, and in general, culture has been uh, <laughs> described as balkanized as a way of talking about things getting firewalled from everything else so that there isn't a total information network. Things are just beginning to blob into smaller units like city-states that are um, not communicating with each other on Earth and everywhere else. Well, this is a term that uh, Marina Abramovich, the great performance artist, uses when she's describing the world in Europe today. And she's a, a Serbian from, uh, basically describes herself as a Yugoslav or, since there's no more Yugoslavia, as a Balkan. And so she says the world is balkanized, and Marina's very persuasive that way. And she's become the great um, performance artist of our time and kind of raised that genre into high art uh, when it, before it was kind of a, a hippie sideshow thing, and now it's the greatest thing going at MoMA and everywhere else in the high art world. And um, I was connected by a mutual acquaintance, uh, and immediately, because I had described people doing art in the future as being doing Abramovich's, and doing Goldsworthy's from Andy Goldsworthy. So your art is either on the landscape or it's on your body, but it isn't just patches of canvas on walls anymore. Art is like everywhere. So when Abramovich heard that this book existed through a mutual acquaintance, um, she read it and she now claims that she is the um, basis for the character Swan that you just read about. And that um, she's in a recent interview in the Wall Street Journal, she says that she's doing performance art on Mercury just so you know. <laughs> because of this science fiction writer. So, so I have a good Balkan friend on my side now. It's very cool. Uh, I love the, uh, the, uh, how important art was in this future. That was a, kind of a shock. Well, the, it's sort of like our culture now. There's a certain um, percentage of the population, the, maybe we could call them the 1%, um, just to keep things relevant to what's going on now, who are post-scarcity. So once you're post-scarcity and you've gotten over the thrill of having marble tabletops instead of Corian marble tops, in other words, there's, there's no point to a certain income beyond a certain level except for conspicuous consumption. And it, um, there's, there's just nothing you can do with it. So people turn to becoming artists because they don't have to uh, worry so much about making a sufficiency. And so it's a somewhat utopian situation in space and still a somewhat grim and screwed up situation on Earth. And so you can easily think of space as just being a metaphor for the 1% the right now, who might as well be living on spaceships as far as they're concerned. And they'll probably move there as soon as they can, uh, as soon as Virgin gets a, a tourist destination. Well, this is the plan, I think, in the back of certain minds. Okay. And it, the fact that it isn't a workable plan is, doesn't matter, because most of our plans have a big fantasy element in them anyway. So, uh, I, I love the way that the feel of this future seems so familiar to the present. I mean, you did a great job of reinventing the present in the future and having so much, so much be so different, so foreign and, and, uh, and strange, yet we could still see that the human animal doesn't change all that much. Yeah, th I have to say that 300 years in the future is too far out to properly imagine. So one of the things I did to try to make it seem plausible that 300 years were past was simply to do several crazy things and be counterintuitive to what we know right now. So um, just to be a little bit shocking and, and when you're reading it thinking, oh my gosh, if we have control of the genome, if we can get into space, then, uh, and, and we have a certain part of the population in a post-scarcity speciating situation where many people are multiple genders, but m also many people are only that tall and they're the ones living the longest. And then there are some people who are 10 feet tall and they have problems when gravity gets high, which is a great little plot twist. Uh, 
so in other words, I tried to uh, push things a little bit and make them shocking, but at the heart of it, uh, there's still going to be um, human genes and human brains and human emotions dealing with all these changes. So it's easy to stay anchored as long as you focus on the characters. Now, you've talked about this book being based on uh, John Dos Passos' USA trilogy, so I'd like you to just talk about how you, you know, the influence of that book on your, just a, as a reader, and how you took to that as a writer. Well, sure, my pleasure. There's a great um, semi-forgotten American novel, the USA Trilogy by John Dos Passos, which was you know, on the cover of Time magazine and quite popular in the mid-30s when, the, when they, the volumes came out, but has been since somewhat forgotten, and mistakenly so, because it's as good as the ones that we remember from that period. I'll just say flatly, he's as good as Hemingway, Fitzgerald, and Faulkner, the, the so-called big three. So, but this book is a little more political and a little more avant-garde. Its style is made up of a collage of different elements. So there's newspaper articles that I think are real newspaper articles, and then a stream of consciousness of a single character never identified, somewhat like Dos Passos, and then pocket biographies of famous Americans like Teddy Roosevelt or John Reed, and then the main plot, except for the characters are followed as if they're in a Charlie Chaplin film, slightly speeded up, and they're bouncing through their lives. They don't have control of their lives. Um, and World War I has happened, and the 20s have happened, and the Depression's happened. And the three volumes keep following different characters to the point you think, well, you're never going to see one character again from one chapter to the next. But at the end of the third volume, they all kind of come back together in a very nifty package, like a, like a Dickens novel almost. And it's a, it's a, not only all these things, but it's beautifully written as well. So why Dos Passos isn't as well remembered is an open question, but we can always bring him back because it's in print and oftentimes in great stores like this, the USA trilogy would be the, on the shelves. And um, the science fiction writer John Brunner used that collage method to write Stand on Zanzibar one of the great science fiction novels. Boy, that's what I was thinking of when I read this book. I just yeah. thought, boy, this is a stand on Zanzibar. Well, Brunner also used the Dos Passos method, and I was asked to write an introduction to Brunner. I wrote the introduction, and I was referencing Dos Passos, and I said to myself, you know, this is one of those uh, bad English major tricks. I'd never actually read the Dos Passos novel. I knew everything about it. I could answer tests about it if I needed to be tested. I hadn't actually <laughs> read the book, and I thought I knew it because I knew Brunner. And I thought it would be about like the Brunner, blah, blah. And this was a mistake. Dos Passos is a much more powerful, talented, uh, gifted writer than John Brunner. Uh, John Brunner is pretty good, but Dos Passos is much better, a true poet and modernist master. So then I read USA in order to write the introduction to Stand on Zanzibar, and I thought, holy moly. If you want to portray a whole culture and not just a few individuals in that culture, you need something better than just a single plot following a single small gang. So you need that collage that, uh, and that's why Dos Passos invented it in the first place. He wanted to show all of the USA and, and, and uh, all levels of the culture and not just a few privileged characters. So when my editor said, why don't you do as much as you did in the Mars trilogy but do it in just one volume, I was thinking, you know, hell, I don't want to do that, but um, I can maybe um, if you make me. And he said, yeah, yeah, do it. And so <laughs> then I, the Dos Passos method is the way to squish, uh, compactify. It was very exciting to discover it and, and realize it was all going to work. There, the writing in here is so beautiful. There are lots of par parts that read like prose poems. There are lists and extracts. And it's, it has a very interesting structure. Talk about developing the structure and how much of the structure, uh, of the pieces of the structure, flowed as you wrote it and how much came you know, in advance. Did you like set up a steel girders and then fill in the, the, the rooms or did you... Uh, just build from the ground floor up? No. Uh, more the former, I think. I, I wrote the story of the main characters, but all along I was thinking, this. I need more, I need the culture at large, and then I was thinking about the Dos Passos method, which is not something you can do halfway. You sort of have to commit to it if you're going to do it at all. So once I committed, I realized I had all these notes that work perfectly as extracts, and essentially the I've got a reputation at this point for being um, um, a bit heavy with the expository lumps. Uh, someone who loves exposition and who is ready to go ahead and talk about the nature of the rock underneath the feet of the characters for 20 pages at a time. You know, if I was interested, 
that's what I would do, and, and I had a lot of faith in my readers, and it's been repaid. You know, readers seem to uh, like it. On the other hand, if you want to be a little uh, faster on your feet or do something different in a different decade, then this came up uh, perfectly, and so I began to structure it sort of after the fact, and I realized I could throw these things around and, and have fun with them, so that certain sections where the sentences where you can tell in your mind, being a canny American citizen, what the rest of the sentence is going to say, I just chop it right there. That's the end of that phrase. There's no punctuation. That phrase is over, and I just go to the next phrase. And it's sort of like when you're reading on your laptop and you've got what you want and you hit the link button to the next thing, you actually never go back because you've got what you needed out of that one. So link, 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 link. And that does lead to a, a, a kind of prose poetry. Yeah, it reminded me of the way I read the newspaper in the morning. You know, you'll read the first paragraph of the story and you kind of you get it. Okay, yeah. you know yeah. they're doing this over there. They, you know, they're blowing up these people over there. Okay, good. And then what, what, what's next? Oh, these guys are voting about this. They're completely crazy. And I think yeah. it really, uh, uh, the way the book is written, is a reflection of the way we currently consume media and the way we kind of make sense of our world. Yeah, I think so. I was playing games with that and realizing that I could make exposition <laughs> funny, or at least shorter. And that was a wonderful little realization. Well, humor is always a big part of your novels, and that's one of the things I think that is, uh, and it's not Douglas Adams' kind of humor. I, it, it's just, it's a little, it's subtle and fun. And, and uh, I'd like you to just talk a little bit about, you know, your sense of humor. Cause it's, uh, <laughs> the people who know me know very well that if I have six months, I can think of a joke. <laughs> 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 and luckily, writing is slow motion stuff. So um, I am not a quick-witted person, but I am persistent. And, uh, and I spend hours of every day looking at the page, uh, you know, pondering. So it's great. You can you can um, be funnier than you are. <laughs> uh, uh, the one of the things that's nice about this book is you, your main plot is really kind of a, a you know a buck kicking thriller kind of thing with a nice love story told uh, woven in, but it's all set in this um, really um, well imagined world that you create. So talk about creating that world. I mean. You made so it sounds like you made the notes in advance and then started uh, writing out your plot. Well, I always start writing and then the, and then it all happens at once. The writing, the research, the notes. I I can't do anything in advance until I start writing. I I can never come to grips with it anyway. So I'm for sure I'm. It's always a part of the writing process. Um, uh, the world building, it it's somewhat comes out of my uh, 20s. I had a solar system-wide civilization in Ice Engine, the memory whiteness. They're never quite the same, and yet I, I have no compunction about stealing from myself. I mean, that's the only person you can steal from, and that's okay. So I've got this city that goes around um, Mercury at the same speed that Mercury rotates, because Mercury only rotates at about five miles an hour at the equator. Essentially, you can walk as fast as the sun is going to come up. And so that's what a lot of people on Mercury do. They walk around the planet right ahead of the sunrise for the fun of it. Uh, and so this comes from one of my uh, earliest science fiction novels. So I pl through the years, I've come back to the solar system. And, and I decided, in order to create the effect of 300 years from now, it can't be a single-issue novel. It had to be an everything novel. I had to throw in everything plus the kitchen sink. I, the kitchen sink principle of novel construction. You just put everything in and make a giant mess, and the novel is good at messiness, which is a beautiful thing for me. So that's how I, I just, uh, I kept on accumulating and looking back and adding things. Well, I love that, of course, that the first thing we export into space, and it's actually, we've got evidence on the moon that the, the first thing we export into space is, of course, our politics. <laughs> Politics, well, yeah. Um, and there's the, plenty of them in this book. I tried to do a 300-year history that obviously is briefly sketched out, but what would be interesting to know is with this civilization terraforming most of the solar system is how do we get there from here? So I had to postulate a fairly um, a bad century that we're entering now, <laughs> followed by a recovery century, followed by a good century, and suggested that the, the, the technological... Um, possibilities that are open to us as we get more powerful in the sciences are truly uh, uh, hard to imagine how, how powerful we can get. But we could get extremely powerful. At the same time, we're having a, a crashing you know, ecosphere. The, 
the planet is being thrashed, the population is too high, we have a really dirty tech. So these two uh, forces are happening at once, and 300 years out, who knows what will be going on, but it could be a little bit of both, because the catastrophes are never pure, like in a, like in a after the apocalypse novel or a science fiction movie. They're, they're going to be more gradual and local, and uh, poor people will suffer more than rich people, low land will suffer more than high land. Uh, places that have fresh water will do better than places that don't have fresh water, and it goes on and on like that. So um, I just uh, um, threw them all in the hopper and mixed them up. Well, y you have a fairly dire uh, prediction for the, the clash of uh, capitalism versus uh, the environment. Yeah, well, that's, that's true, and that's not a hard call to make. Uh, we don't price things properly, and so um, we have a economic system based on perpetual growth in a finite biosphere, and then we're, we're hitting the limits in many different ways. Um, actually, here in California, we're particularly good at, at uh, working out uh, global footprints. Um, in other words, the intellectual apparatus in California for calculating these things is actually pretty good. On, on the other hand, our transport infrastructure is pretty bad, so um, <laughs> we're a mess here too, but at least there's lots of ideas here. Well, uh, one of the things I, I really loved about this book was the uh, the various uh, kind of uh, parts that you put in, lists and extracts, and uh, then there's the quantum walk, mm -hmm. and there are, um, uh, I guess, place poems. Right. And, and those are all really fun and, and interesting. And it's interesting how you use them for, for uh, to drive the plot, too. Because the, there's a great um, uh, bit about... Uh, Saturn, and, and then at the very end, you, you say something about Titan, and then there'll be, we'll hear more about Titan later, and it's just in this list, but all of a sudden, you've got us jumping ahead, salivating to find out what the hell's going to happen with Titan. Yeah, I, these things are, I think, fun to do, but it was important, because there is a story uh, kind of buried under them in the text, uh, that it was important to use them as uh, to keep oriented to the plot. So I tried to place them right and have them be keys to what was going to happen next, etc. Well, now the plot involves um, Swan, who's uh, an uh, Abramovic, Abramovic artist, is that mm -hmm. And uh, she, she meets a, a man named Warham, and, and he's, he's a, literally a Saturnine uh, human being. <laughs> well, yes, and she's literally mercurial. This was the sort of the origin for the whole book. Uh, uh, a romance between a mercurial personality and a Saturnine personality, and that, as if you know these astrological types, you can realize that would be a real odd couple, but um, really all couples are odd couples, don't look like they should work from the outside almost 100% of the time, and yet they do, so I thought this would be like the most extreme version of that case, uh, to have someone as mercurial as Swan and someone as uh, Saturnine as Walram, and and they and it was my joke to have them come from the planets respectively, but then I needed to put it 300 years in the future just to have an excuse to have people on Mercury and Saturn. So it all followed from the original romance, and, I, and it's still central to the book. I think that's their story is the real story of the book that everything else is, hopefully not uh, is uh, illuminated by. Well, also too, you have a uh, a nice uh, toe-tapping kind of mystery thriller with a a Poirotish. Uh, inspector. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I love yeah. the Poirot effect in there. Yeah, although I have to say it's actually Inspector McGray from Simonon. Oh, Simonon's McGray, my okay. favorite of the well, of the French detectives by far. But those McGray mysteries, which you can no longer find, uh, they used to be everywhere in the landscape. Tiny little thin green back, green spined penguins, oh, because uh, Simonon yeah. always wrote all his novels in eleven days, one chapter per day, locked himself in a hotel until he was done 11 days later, which is a method I admired hugely. Uh, so yes, I lifted McGray, put him in space, made him gender uh, neutral. You can't tell what gender ins inspect Inspector Jeanette is uh, in my book. And, he, and also, Inspector Jeanette, I shouldn't say, hey, because who knows what this person is. And believe me, you have to do a lot of contortions to avoid he or she in English prose. But never is the inspector referred to either way, except for a couple typos my wife recently found that we're going to try to fix. <laughs> but uh, Inspector Jeanette is only about this tall and is, a, I guess you could say, a, a gender indeterminate. 
and is a, really the sharpest detective in the solar system. And I had a lot of fun there. Well, I like how what you do with the the, the mystery genre in in the future. There's a a part where you say um, that they're looking for uh, uh, they're looking at databases to to where where they where they want to find the formulate questions that they can find amidst the data. And I thought that was a really interesting perception of how that works. Yeah, I think that the mostly the detective novel is doomed, that it, it's a thing from the 1940s, and that when people pretend to do it now, they're ignoring the way it's really going to be done, especially 300 years in the future with, a kind of, um, with surveillance cameras and with information and people with barcodes in their, uh, in, in their DNA and, and therefore in their blood. The whole notion of detection as something that Sherlock Holmes would do or, or Edgar Allan Poe that went through noir and everything is just out of luck. So doing a detective novel meant that I had to um, look odd. I bet this book is sounding pretty strange at this point, now that I think <laughs> about everything that I've described. Um, well, it's, it's, uh, it's kind of a toe-tapping thriller, I thought. Of. Good. Yes, well, it means to be. There are some moments where our, our characters are uh, in danger. But by and large, hunting for somebody who's done something bad will be something that artificial intelligence will be better at than we are. So uh, you have your quantum computer, detective aid, et cetera, et cetera. His passport, too. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I talked about the, the, the quantum computers in, in, this, in this novel and how, how they work. There's a, there's, um, our main character has a uh, second head on her shoulder, so to speak. Well, you know, there are deaf people now who have uh, computers in, in their skull right behind their ear that provides a lot of the uh, necessities for them to actually hear uh, in, in uh, new ways. So they combined that thought with the idea, I don't believe in artificial intelligence. I think that's actually a bad name. It's a, it's a kind of an MIT promotional, we can do everything type name like the singularity or some such thing. And I don't believe in any of these things. But um, they are working on quantum computers, and at that point you get into quantum weirdness, and it gets very hard to follow and to comprehend. But the, one of the main distinctions being made between the human brain and computers is that human brains probably are, work at such a fine level that they have quantum effects working and that consciousness is not a digital thing, that we are not complicated computers, but something different, stranger, organic, and probably quantum. Well, once you make a quantum computer, then that huge distinction begins to fall apart. And then I began to think, well, a, a quantum computer of even a few qubits, they call the individual units, um, they, they superpose all of the possible decisions you can make at once, and then when they fall back into reality, um, you get your decision. And so they can calculate in certain things very much faster than classical computers can do it or than human brains can do it. And at that point, do you, what do you have in terms of their thinking? And I still think it's like a search engine and that it's not conscious, but if it sounds like it when you talk to it, it might be very easy to imagine that you had a consciousness back there rather than just a really quick uh, Google and, uh, and voice box. So, I mean, now you're seeing it. There's a John Malkovich commercial that is on all the TV channels, at least the sports TV channels. Hilariously, John Malkovich is alone with his... Uh, iPhone 4 and it's talking back to him and it's providing better conversation than he gets because he's bored with all his human friends. It's, it's pretty great. Science fiction uh, commercial and my Pauline is like that only much, much more so. And that also uh, ties into the plot too, which I think is nice the way that uh, um, you use the technology to um, uh, complicate the, the mystery things. Well, if you, if what if quantum computers got to the point where they began to think about intention, where they had ideas of what they might want to do, or they had instructions, do this, and then they took the instructions as being, essentially, they get you back into Asimov's three laws, it, uh, and, but, uh, but uh, the computers might not have a good sense of judgment uh, as to what's appropriate or not in human affairs. So once they get out on the loose and once they seem to be inside what looks to be a very convincing human body, either an android body or a mechanical body, in any case something that you can't tell by eye whether it's human or made and whether it's a human brain or a quantum computer up there, then you've got very odd characters on the loose. So 
Fun to read about. Yes. It's an entertaining uh, uh, part of the novel. Now, uh, are you a whistler? I am. <laughs> I'm not as good a whistler as the characters in the book are. This is such an interesting uh, notion that there would be people who would, could whistle classical music. And I mean, it makes perfect sense. It's a great kind of through line to the future. And that, that's the kind of thing that I think this uh, book really excels at, is that kind of imagination of the future, that there would be people who would just be able to whistle up Brahms. <laughs> well, I, you can definitely do that. Uh, my, my aunt, my, my mom's sister, would whistle on stage uh, with her husband playing the harp. Really? And, uh, and uh, when we were, my wife and I were hiking in Nepal, and uh, all day we'd be walking, you know, 10 hours a day, walking mm -hmm. on the trail together. And so I whistled for her uh, all the Beethoven symphonies I could remember. And our, our Sherpa guides, uh, at some point, they looked back at me and they indicated to me, because we had very few words in common, they thought I was a remarkably good whistler because of the Beethoven. <laughs> and they thought I was making up Beethoven's themes and was an exceptionally <laughs> good composer. So I remembered these things and I put them in a, my characters have to take a long slog in this novel and so they whistle to pass the time. But our swan, having all the most fashionable things in her brain from the previous century, includes some uh, Skylark uh, brain nodules because bird brains work different than human brains and they, they work like grape clusters rather than layers. So um, it's been postulated that you could insert uh, bird brains into your brain and think, well, what can a bird give you? But one thing a bird can give you is much better whistling than you can do yourself. So Swan turns out to be the much better whistler and sounds like a skylark. You know, um, there's so much art in this book and in so many different spins on art. And I, lo I, w I love that you give us a recipe for primordial soup. I I've always wanted a recipe for primordial soup. And, and, and here it is. <laughs> Yeah, there are several recipes. Uh, how to um, terraform Venus, how to um, turn an asteroid into a terrarium, and how to make life from scratch. And, uh, talk about the terrariums, because those as works of art and just as uh, uh, vehicles to get us from one part to the other, I mean, that's an essential uh, part of the book, and I think it's a really brilliant idea. Well, it comes from the old O'Neill colonies in the 1970s. The idea that if you get up into space, you're going to need gravity and you're going to need protection from cosmic rays, as otherwise we will sicken and die up there. So O'Neill's notion was to build gigantic cylinders and spin them. You'd live on the inside of the cylinder. The spin would press you against it, like in 2001. And so you'd have artificial gravity, and the walls would protect you from cosmic rays. Well, asteroids are mostly shaped like potatoes. And so in this book, they're all hollowed out and spun up and you live inside your asteroid, and inside you could have any biome you want. Some of them are entirely liquid, uh, some of them are, are uh, you know, equatorial or polar or any biome on Earth, especially the threatened ones, the ones that are messed up on Earth, the marshes, that kind of place. So each asteroid has its own uh, biosphere internally and can serve as a kind of a zoo where endangered <coughs> creatures on Earth that are, uh, where Earth is so thrashed in this book, um, can be kept until a better time and then reintroduced into Earth's biosphere as a kind of inoculant so that we can save, avoid the mass extinction event that we're entering and save a whole bunch of creatures. So there's a kind of a, a larger environmentalist message. In a way, once again, this is a metaphor for what we're kind of doing and could be doing more and are going to have to do. And so it's all inside asteroids. So as you live, you look up and you're seeing the other side of town overhead. And so at all points you are inside your world, and it wraps around you like a rolled-up map. Well, I love that, too, that there are works of art, and that's one of Swan's mediums, is to uh, create these kind of worlds with different themes, which she, of course, and one of the things I love about Swan is that she, you know, dis, you know she disses her own old stuff. Well, yes, you, I mean, I was inspired by a recent article of the island of Ascension between Africa and South America. When Charles Darwin visited it with the beagle, he started spreading out seeds from plants that came from elsewhere in the world. And then other people began to grow bananas there. And Ascension Island had rich volcanic soil, but it's a brand new island out there and way away from everywhere else. So I call these things ascensions, where the, there's quite a... Uh, uh, a little biome now on that island that wasn't there until human beings came. So it's like an accidental garden with mix and match. So there's some Australian species and there's some uh, South American and some African and some European 
So an ascension is basically a garden world that has been made in the case of Ascension Island by accident, but it's about 150 years old, and it's there to be seen in all of its oddness. And, it's, and, and it, evolution happens, things begin to speciate and change. So I thought that some of my um, internal asteroids would be made-up worlds where you'd mix some things from Australia and some things from Europe. I mean, that's California, right? You get all, uh, we ourselves here are in a gigantic garden of plants from elsewhere. The Native American Plant Society of California has to defend these little um, patches of California nativeness and even our wonderful Golden Hills. I mean, I just drove down here from Davis and it's very hard to imagine what California looked like before the Mediterranean grass took over everything and does its green-gold combination. I mean, it's quite beautiful, but it's not what was here uh, before. So they have ascension worlds. Well, and two, I love that your idea about the importance of soil. You, you have a couple of, of great, you know, lovely kind of prose poems to soil because soil is essentially dirt, which is essentially the earth, and that's the most important part. Yeah, but no, I mean, the, the important thing about soil is that it isn't dirt because it's about 10 or 20 percent alive by weight, and it's bacteria, and bacteria can't be listed uh, and saved by themselves because they change so quickly into each other. So there's many more bacteria than we've ever identified, and so when you get your soil, if it's good soil, uh, it's uh, alive and crawling, and you can't reproduce it from scratch. You can't bring the necessary DNA up with you and crunch a little asteroid and then throw, what would it be, magic DNA, and, and then suddenly have uh, bacteria and therefore soil. You can't do it at all, so you need inoculants. So you bring up a ton or two of soil and you throw it into a, a, a sterile basin, very quickly the bacteria will shoot out into an empty, uh, an empty ecological niche. And once they've colonized it, uh, you need water too, you know, water and minerals, and then you need the bacteria. And, and you can't, um, you can't, humans can't make it from scratch. There's no recipe for making soil in the book because we can't do it. What there is a recipe for is a, a, a reasonable economic uh, vision. And actually that comes from a place uh, an obscure village <laughs> in the Basque. So uh, talk about that, because I thought that was really interesting. Well, this town, Mondragon, it's in the Basque part of Spain. Um, it runs as a set of nested co-ops. The citizens own the town, and the banks are credit unions that are owned by the town. So it's worker-owned businesses, and everybody there is working in an interlocking system and I'm sure this is a somewhat idealized description of the town, but it has been functioning like that since World War II, and it does very well. And so capitalist economists look at it and they say, well, those people are all Basques, and they hang together like Basques do, and think that's not good enough. And there's only 70,000 of them, and none of them are moving in and out of town. I'm thinking that's not really true either, I bet. And so, so there's a lot of critiques against it as a system that could work for all of us that are probably false critiques. Probably it could be scaled up. Probably we could be in a worker-owned world. But certainly there are, um, uh, that isn't the way the world works now. And there's a whole lot of um, money and power and uh, military power to keep it from changing that way. And a lot of disinformation. And um, you know the world we live in. I really don't have to describe this in much detail, especially in good old Santa Cruz. <laughs> so, but given that's true, once you get out into space, I, I thought of this when I went to Antarctica. In Antarctica, that we never used money. You went down to the, to the um, galley, you ate your meals. You, you, your clothes had been provided, your room was provided, you were assigned it. And, and nothing was uh, money-based except for the little trinkets that you would buy to send back home. Uh, games, toys, stamps, um, camera stuff. I thought, well, geez, why did, maybe the whole world should run like that. It's, it's something that a science fiction writer is allowed to think, and maybe even American citizens are allowed to think. <laughs> well, so that's what I did. I put that into space, but the idea is can you, can you retrofit that? Can you inject it back into the Earth, Earth's uh, old economy? And the answer is no, not very easily, not at all. No more is it easy to do it here. You, know, you can make Santa Cruz dollars. You can try to become a, a, an independent city-state here that runs like Mondragon, but... You're uh, caught in a bigger world that doesn't like it that way, so it gets extremely difficult to uh, execute. The best ideas in the world, executing them is really not easy. Well, I, I think you execute them excellently. <laughs> <laughs> By the time 2312 comes, we'll be in good shape. <laughs> That's cold comfort somehow. <laughs> I, I don't... Now, one of the things you that... Uh, 
has happened in your future is that people live longer and that has you know seriously changes the way they look at their lives and, and the way they look at how they set up relationships and I think that you know the um, the longevity and the uh, kind of pansexuality that you create is really interesting and, and it's uh, clearly it's a core part of the novel it's certainly a core part of the love story well, I've worked on longevity for a long time with the idea that that's what science is mostly about, that we're going to be pushing at that boundary, and the longer I go on, the more I wish it would, was easier than it is. Um, it'd be nice to have longevity fast, but it looks to be really a tough problem that it's already, we already have longevity, okay, that, um, you know, average lifetimes were very much shorter uh, before, and it wasn't just because of infant mortality, it was because of so many things that we've gotten a handle on. But the more we know, the, the more we realize that it's going to be um, difficult to push out human lifespans on average very far. So it's part of my utopian aspect of my work to suggest that if medicine keeps on banging away at it, the most common illnesses that kill us now might be um, forestalled better, and then new ones will come along to be the most common illnesses. And there's some pretty horrible lists in this book, uh, including lists of the most frequent illnesses in 2312, which aren't the same as now, and yet still get people. So, okay, if you, you live to 150 uh, years and then suddenly you fall over in the street dead, that's what's going to happen, and it's going to be just as, as, um, just as bad as it ever was. So it's not, a, it's not any kind of um, uh, denial of death. It's just a, a hope that medicine will work and will keep pushing at this boundary. So people in this book are living into their second century in good health uh, pretty regularly, especially the spacers. But they do it by coming back for one year out of every seven to Earth to get their sabbatical because they need precisely that bacterial load. I don't think we can live in space all the time and have the human body react well because I don't, we're only 10% of the DNA inside our own bodies, and so the rest of the 90% in space is not going to be properly... Um, fed, you might say. So that's one of the things going on in this book is that we, Earth is crucial even to longevity, that you don't leave Earth and then suddenly live to be two centuries. You keep coming back to Earth, and that's the only way you live to two centuries. So it was another way of complicating the picture and trying to make sure that, um, the, that this future had the, the gnarliness and strangeness of our own time, too. Well, that's what I like about the book, is it, it has the rich, um, life's rich pageant uh, 300 years in the future, and it feels very real. And it doesn't feel, as you read this, it doesn't really feel like a science fiction novel in many ways. I mean, even though you have a lot of weirdness and, and it's set 300 years in the future, it has uh, the feel of uh, just like when you, sometimes if you like go to a strange city, if you travel to New York for the first time, you sit, plop, plop down and you look around, you've spent most of your life in Santa Cruz, and you look at New York and you go, what the hell is this? Or you get out, you know, you're flying to, as this happened to me, I was flying to Singapore and I got out at, in Hong Kong for like 15 minutes and looked around and went, wow, mm. this is just bizarre. Well, I, try, I, I treat those, I, I call those science fiction experiences. Mm. And Manhattan is definitely, for me, a science fiction experience. It's like going to Trantor, Asimov's planet uh, city. <laughs> uh, that's Manhattan and it always boggles my mind. Uh, so I, I think this is a science fiction novel, but that one of the things science fiction can do if it wants to is describe daily life. Daily life in some other situation that is alien and bizarre, but also it always is a funhouse mirror reflection of daily life right now because we're already in a science fiction novel. This is the thing I've been saying all along. California, uh, late 20th century, early 21st century, it's already a science fiction novel that we're all writing together. And by that I mean that science is absolutely determining how we live, and also, if you open up your laptop or your newspaper any given morning, no matter what you read, you're not going to be surprised. It could be that we cloned a person. Um, it could be that aliens just showed up on the moon. It does not matter what you read about in the paper. You're ready for it because science fiction has made you ready for it because it's already happened to us every day. Uh, or not every day, but every week we're reading something completely bizarre that is already, uh, we're used to it. So it's because we're science fiction people. And so I think that science fiction should be a much more popular genre than it is if people were interested in, what, in the world they lived in. But a lot of people live in various pockets of the past, and they can't quite handle this modern world. Well, I think a lot of uh, 
fiction is that uh, doesn't want to admit it is science fiction too. I mean, a well, that's a whole publishing. Yeah, that's a that's a yeah. But that's not an interesting thing. That's no. just publishing trying to cut around for market share, find audience, and there are some old snobberies out there. But that's even less interesting. No, what's interesting is your book. Now, um, do we have any questions from the audience? And uh, like Jeopardy, remember, please phrase your, your question in the form of a question. <laughs> yes? Uh, what kind of a, this book in particular, but other books that I've read of yours, are so intensely steeped in science itself, which may be true, of course, for the genre at large, but I'm not that familiar with it any longer. But um, I just love that it is just so science in that, you know, I'm like constantly looking up things and, you know, it's a real um, sort of a learning and you know, like you're teaching that kind of learning experience. So I wondered what your background is. There's my question. Yeah. In, in um, well, uh, I'm an English major. I have no background in science, um, but I am married to a scientist and that has put me in a culture of scientists for the last 30 years and that's been very um, uh, educational. And then I read Science News, which is just that little weekly, uh, now it's a bi-weekly pamphlet, comes out and gives you the science news of the last two weeks. And I've read that for about 35 years, and that is really an education in itself. It makes you scientifically literate even if you don't have numbers, which I don't. Um, so those are the things that explain it. And also I think it just finds me the best stories. Um, I, I, I get an idea for a story, and it's really kind of a bare little thing, and then I start to research it. and. At that point, the problem becomes when can you cut off the interesting stories? You know, what, at what uh, joint can you make a cut and say, okay, I could tell interesting stories till the end of time because science is just one linked, interesting story linked to the next. And so how can I chop and make a plot out of it? But I, I and so I, I'm committed to it, obviously. It is the thing I do. And um, it's nice. It's, it, it's, um, Watching a scientist at work has been a, um, always, almost always, pretty hilarious too. So, <laughs> yeah. Do you see this? I mean, even though your publisher wanted it to be one book, do you see this being part of a larger work? No, no. And in fact, my publisher is very good about that. I, I mean, the publisher would be the one to say, "Oh gosh, make this into a trilogy. We'd like this to be ten books long, and you know, kind of cut it by cloth." Um, but they haven't um, pressed for that, and I don't want to do it. I, it's done. It's a, it's a, it's a novel, and so it's, it's, it suggests a world or a solar system, but it's just one novel that has a beginning and an ending, and I really like having both of those in a book. And I don't have any more stories to tell in this world, and I also feel like if readers finish it and they think, oh, gosh, we need more, we need more, we need more, that that's a good desire to not satisfy to leave as desire only, and I'm spinning in the brain off into the different directions that you might take. But I'm pretty much done, and, and actually this is in some ways a bad thing, like I'm painting myself into a corner, or I'm slowly but surely cutting my floor away um, in that I don't want to repeat myself, so now I can't go in the solar system anymore. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a big place, especially since I don't believe we can get to the stars. Um, but luckily I'm getting along in my career. I only have to do a few more books and I'll, I'll figure out something, but I won't do any more in this world. Where don't you think we can get to the They're too far away. There's actually a, one, of the ex, one of the extracts in here addresses that. They're, they're chopping up one of the minor moons of um, Pluto and Charon have a couple of smaller moons going around them. They're chopping one of them up to make it into a starship and so then there's a long calculation as to how They'll get up to 2% of the speed of light, and that's 10 million miles an hour. 10 million miles an hour. It's stupendous speed for human beings. And at that speed, you can get to the closest uh, star in, wait for it, 2,000 years. So this is what science fiction does. It lies. It says, oh, well, we've got hyperspace. We've got warp drive. And so therefore, we can zip across space fire th faster than the speed of light. But the truth is, we do not have warp drive or hyperspace, and we're never going to go faster than the speed of light. Not only that. We'll be lucky to get to 2% of the speed of light. I was calling that maximum human speed, which at 10 billion miles an hour, I think is justified to say that. So you can't get to the stars. So suddenly the solar system looks like the neighborhood. That's why I'm a little bit 
appalled that I've finished off the solar system for myself because the rest of the, um, you have to think of it in scales that we're not used to thinking of, and especially since science fiction has always made it so easy for us. So let's go to Alpha Centauri, maybe for lunch, because we can drop into the wharf drive and come back instantly, but it isn't so. So what's interesting is to think about what might really happen. And I think if there's any extra attraction to this book or to my books is this notion of science of what could really happen, then let's stay within that playground and you still have quite an amazing playground. You know, might live to 150 years, might get out to um, you know, the moons of Jupiter, but no stars. Or surf the rings of Saturn. Yes, I have some surfing in here for all of us as Santa Cruz uh, surfers. Uh, yeah, the rings of Saturn throw out waves, and everywhere there are waves, there are surfers. I know we've all noticed that. You know, one thing that I thought was really interesting just was the idea of the challenge that you as a writer face conveying the texture of the future with the prose of the present. I mean, that's... A <laughs> well... That's easy. When you just start to do that, that that's, a, that's a challenge. Yeah, their science comes up uh, helpful again because science has set the ground rules for making up new words, which I rarely do, but they've made up so many new words for us that you can just use a modern scientific vocabulary and you sound ridiculously overcommitted to Greek and Latin and long words in general. I, the, my publishers, I love these, these pe people orbit so much. They had the audio book ready the same day that the book was ready in its ebook and its hardback form. So there was a birthday for the book. The audio recorders got hold of me and sent me an email and a 12-page list of words that they wanted me to tell them how to pronounce. <laughs> and I didn't know a single one of them. And I nevertheless, I answered them in full. So I made up every single pronunciation just using whatever rules you would use. And so this book, whoever read it aloud, I probably completely screwed them up. But I didn't want to admit that I was using tons of words that I didn't even know how to say. So I just pretended. You have a question over there? Yeah. I'd like to put in a... Well, I, you know, I try to make sure that every word is, is definable by its context. And, and I try also to make sure, well, really, they're all Googleable, so that they're none of them made up. So between those two, I think it should be all right. And, you know, when, you, when you're talking about seashells and at some point the narrator says conchological, well, I've never seen that word before or since, but because you're talking about seashells and because it's conch, and then you think, oh, logical. You know, oh, yeah, the science of seashells is conchology. It all makes sense. So you can sort of work it out even when you've never seen the words before. At least that's my intention. I may not always uh, achieve that. But that is what I try for. Yeah. Yeah. Um, since the story is set so far in the future, I was wondering, were you approaching it from the present, or were you approaching it from the future, kind of writing the story of what happened from sort of at a point where you wanted to end up? Or were you writing from the present side of kind of thinking of where you were going? No, more the, more the, uh, the latter, where I had a situation in mind that I wanted. And then I worked, if given this situation, what would it take? And I worked backwards to the present. Uh, and even so, I mean, there's a, one of the extracts here is basically a history of the 300 years broken up into periods. Like we have the medieval period, the Renaissance, the early modern, the modern, the postmodern. So after the postmodern, you need a new name, and it kind of falls at that po uh, part at that point. So I have a historian name all the periods after that. So the dithering, the crisis, the turnaround, the accelerando, the retard, <laughs> and the balkanization. So I have, uh, what is that, six or seven historical periods to get us from here to there that seem plausible, like a period of disarray leading to a period of crisis, which I think we're probably headed towards. Now, that could either devolve into a horrible Mad Max future, or if we pull ourselves out of it, it is going to look like an acceleration. So it all seemed to make sense. If you postulate a positive future, then you have to work it back like that. Yeah. Yeah, there's a book, a book about the history and the making of Star Trek. Star Trek was taking off and it was getting popular. And then Gene Roddenberry, oh, can we, can we please get 
we need more writers, we need more science fiction writers. Come on, get more, get more, because we're running out of material. You know? And so they'd hired the best science fiction writers for a lot of their stories, and right mm -hmm. on the spot, these great science fiction writers were able to come up with stuff right away. It seemed like from the way, unless I read it the wrong way, am I kind of correct, I guess, but, but great science fiction writers can come up with stuff pretty quickly. Well, you know, but here's what I think happened. By the time Star Trek came along, and they did indeed hire a bunch of first-ranked science fiction writers, and um, but they had, at that point, what was this? This was the end of the 60s, beginning of the 70s. So that, at that point, they had 30 or 40 years of great science fiction, American science fiction, engineering science fiction, Star Trek-style science fiction, ready to go. And uh, they had worked out so many... A plot. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There was a whole tradition of earlier, and and it w it's a genre where people <laughs> borrow from each other. The, the scenario of faster than light travel, so that you know you could oh, say, oh, that's been done. So. And they already put it into production. We're already. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To some degree, it's already. Done. Yeah, they could fit it to the Star Trek scenario, and and this many of these stories were uh, somewhat pre-existing, and and I'm not saying it was in any case uh, plagiarism because they had to twist it to make sure that it was you know, that Spock would be hilarious, and unbeknownst to us until afterwards, Kirk was also hilarious, and it was, William Shatner had to take this, the 40 years since then to teach us how funny Kirk was, because he played it so straight at the time, but in fact, Kirk and Spock are a great comedy team, and then all the science fiction ideas were uh, made to fit them, but they're older ideas. Oh, uh, yeah, at the back and then you. Yeah, at the back. Yeah, yeah. I, I, you mentioned the word reality a moment ago, and I noticed on page 245, uh, you described perhaps our current situation in our near future and our distant future. I'm, I'm very impressed with your selectivity of your designation. The dithering, 2005 to 2000, 2060, the end of the postmodern da-da-da. These yeah. were wasted years. Clearly, any informed citizen, whether scientist or not, we are ignoring what we're doing to the environment, overpopulating, overextracting this planet. It's obvious to anyone who's informed. And yet we have half the American population completely living with their head in the sand regarding all these trends, especially global warming. Then you indicate the crisis, 2060 to 2130, the disappearance of the Arctic summer ice, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And then you promise hope with the turnaround 2130 to 2160, you predict artistically, and then the accelerando, 2160 to 2220, and then the retard, 2220 to 2270, and we restore the planet in your, in your well-written book, um, and I hope it's possible, both artistically and in, in dealing with in rea the reality perspective, um, and then you say, you indicate that the Montag last slave the Mondragon Accord somehow allows humanity to focus itself, to live in harmony, to populate and colonize the solar system, which clearly is, is the alternative, realistically, in fact, in pretty scientific views. Can you describe why, what the Mondragon Accord is, please, and why it is successful, uh, even in the novel? Yeah, sure. Although I have done this, uh, uh, I, I have uh, addressed this a, a little earlier in the discussion. So very briefly, Mondragon Spain runs as a system of nested co-ops, and the bank is a credit union owned by the populace. It's a, it's a population-owned economy, and it works on a small scale. And I postulated that space stations being at first non-economic would um, adopt that model as they begin to team up together. So it's a matter of, and then it becomes a question, can the tail wag the dog? And then it's, a, well, maybe if the tail's healthy and the dog is sick, maybe the tail can wag the dog. So that's in a short version of how that comes about. Yes, you. Uh, I mean, perhaps I'm making this up, but sometimes I find little bits of Davis, California, in your novels. Can you expect any of that in 2312? No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, much as I love Davis, which is a great place to work and bring up your kids, um, once you get to design your own asteroid world, um, there is a Henry Thoreau, New England. There is um, Tahiti. There is even the Sierra Nevada of California wrapping around you, uh, Sequoia Kings Canyon. But a Central Valley of the California, I think one of them is enough. <laughs> 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 Wait, have yes. 
Oh, big, and then behind. Uh -huh. the big, my next question. Um, do, after writing and inventing this civilization, spanning the solar system, do you ever get tired of being Earthbound and would you <laughs> Yes, I would like to get the view. I would like to do low Earth orbit or the moon or, or Mars, but that's all. I would like it if it was a two-week journey. Um, I, I thought I would be up for more until I went to the South Pole. And then I spent five days at the South Pole and it was like being trapped in a bad Motel 6. <laughs> and I thought, I'm not capable of space because I don't want to be indoors that much. And so it changed my mind. And um, uh, I don't, uh, what I would like is just not practical to what we have now, except for maybe that quick trip to low Earth orbit, but I think that's going to be a rich person's game for a long time. Yeah, behind. You say in your book you have three key characters and ten key characters. Did they follow evolution or did man build these characters? And if he did, why, uh, why did he choose these two types? Man built them. These are genomic, these are, I, I was looking at dogs and thinking that dogs are all one species and that we're getting control over our genome. And one of the ways I wanted to boggle the reader a little bit was to suggest that once you can begin to tweak your genome, people might start doing it for fun. So the tall people are just trying to be tall and big and look like Michelangelo's David in full size, you know, 10 feet tall, and it's kind of impressive. The small people are living longer. And uh, that is a little counterintuitive, but it's not completely impossible. Uh, and they're, they're much, uh, uh, better adapted to high gravity environments uh, so that there's a set piece at the end of this book, spoiler alert, where when in an emergency the gravity goes to about 3G. Well, the people who are that tall, maybe they were 50 pounds uh, and then with the 3G they were 150 pounds, but we are adapted, our muscles can handle 150 pounds, whereas the people who are 450 pounds to begin with are over a thousand pounds when 3G hits and they're just flat on the floor on their back. They can't, they don't have the musculature to move themselves. So the little people are hauling the big people off to the emergency <laughs> escape hatches and then they just throw them off into space, in spacesuits, where they can be fine because they're back into zero G, but the little people are in a real, on a real high at that point. <laughs> Having a good time. As good a time as the readers of Stan's fine novel. Uh, I think we'll give Stan time to sign some of the books. I hope you'll all buy one. And actually, we had the, he has a lot of his books here, and they're all really great stuff. Um, Stan Robinson, his new book is 21, 2312. God, I knew I would do that. I don't know why, but I knew I would do that. 2112. The no. sequel. The prequel. <laughs> <laughs> 2312. Thank you for joining me, Stan. Thank you. Thank you all for coming. Love Santa Cruz. My town. My beach town. My beach town for 30 years. We have to work to keep that true. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.